0: Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here with you guys today. And I'm going to start out with my story from the beginning. It does include um, suicide and depression. But I'm going to tell you from the beginning um, kind of where I started, where I came from. I grew up about an hour north of Chicago. And growing up, my childhood was always very all-American and carefree is how I usually describe it. I had everything I needed, most of what I wanted. I had an older brother. I had an older sister. My parents were always married. And there just weren't many trials or tragedies in my life as a kid, so I thought life was always going to be really wonderful and carefree until I got into junior high, and it was around those ages that I started to realize that there were wars going on in the world, that um, sexual abuse was a real issue, that homelessness was a real issue, and I became burdened by all of it. I wanted to do something to try and make a difference in the world, so I started volunteering at our local homeless shelter every Friday night for about a year. And at the end of that year, it looked to me like homelessness was just as much of an issue as when I had begun volunteering. So I felt like I had not made much of a difference in that year. And as I went into high school, I just tried to focus on making myself my family and my friends happy. And for the first couple of years that sort of went okay. I had a lot of friends. I was on the soccer team. My boyfriend was prom king. Um, To me and to others it seemed like my life was going well. But very quickly and very unexpectedly a number of things started to go wrong. Among those things I lost four of my friends. I lost one in a car accident. I lost one in a motorcycle accident. I lost one Because of a brain tumor, and I lost one because of suicide. And I didn't know um, that I could turn to God for wisdom, help, comfort, peace, understanding. I kind of thought I had to handle it all on my own. I was sort of the friend who went to everybody for help with their problems, so I kept the way that I was feeling about everything kind of locked away deep inside. And on top of those four friends that I lost within about a year and a half's time, on top of their deaths, I lost um, my grandmother. I was raped by a young man, and I was being stalked by two others. So I continued um, to try and handle it all on my own. I was in denial about the rape, um, and um, my parents knew something was wrong with me because I started showing signs of of depression, but they didn't know quite w- what it was. Um, I was skipping school. I was skipping classes. My grades were dropping. I was physically getting sick every day. Um, If people asked me how I was doing, I would say things like, I'm here, sort of like, isn't that good enough? I would also always say, life sucks because I meant it so seriously. And eventually, New Year's Eve of my senior year came, and I was supposed to be grounded because I had been skipping classes and skipping school, but my parents were going to let me go out that one night just to be nice. They were going to let me go out for New Year's Eve of my senior year. But we argued back and forth about what time I would come home. I wanted to stay out at a friend's house overnight. My mom wanted me to come home just after midnight. But I eventually agreed to come home when she wanted me to, sort of knowing in my head as I left the house that I really wasn't going to come home at all that night. And I went to a party. My friends picked me up, and that night I felt like I made a lot of good choices. I was the designated driver for my friends. I wasn't smoking. I wasn't drinking. I wasn't doing thing with boys. So I felt like I was making good choices. But at about midnight, I called my mom to tell her I wasn't coming home. And I hung up before she could even respond or answer me. And I did that because I just didn't want to feel the guilt um, of her worry. And as I, as I hung up, I hung out with my friends longer. And it wasn't until like 10 o'clock in the morning the next day when I did come home. And my parents, um, the best way for me to describe it is they were just sort of beside themselves. They were always very loving, very involved, um, very you know caring about where I was and whatnot. So I remember my mom said something like, Kristen, we didn't know if you were dead in a ditch somewhere or what had happened to you. And I felt terrible because I really wasn't trying to worry them. I wasn't trying to stress them out or anything. I was really just trying to do whatever made me feel better in the moment. Whatever made me feel better at that time is what I did. And so they didn't know how badly I was doing. I really didn't know how badly I was doing. They thought I was, and they thought I was just being rebellious. So they made my punishment material and social. They told me I was grounded until further notice. And the things that i gotten for Christmas would either be returned to the store or given to somebody who would appreciate them. And that was really hard for me at the time because I was very, um, I found a lot of my value in the things that I had. So to have my things taken away and returned to the store, given to somebody who would appreciate them, was hard because I um, just thought the clothes that I had and whatnot is what made me special and what made me important. So that was difficult, and then to be grounded until further further notice was even more difficult because I really think at that point in my life I was pretty much living for my friends. There's not really anything else I was living for besides them. So to be grounded until further notice was was really hard, but. That day after I got my punishment, I went to sleep. I had been up the whole night before, and I was really tired, so I went to sleep, and I slept the whole day and the whole night. And the next morning when I woke up, it was a Sunday morning. And in my family on Sunday mornings, every week, every Sunday, we went to church. So that morning I went into church, and I left church just feeling exactly the same way, very broken, very disillusioned, very lost, very confused, and... I remember as we got home, my mom laid down to take a nap because she was tired from the night that she had waited up for me, and my dad left to go buy a washer and dryer. And I decided to put on these videos of my nephews who were really little at the time opening their Christmas presents. I thought that would cheer me up a little bit, maybe put a smile on my face, and it did. It did cheer me up a little bit, but as I was watching these videos of my nephews opening their Christmas presents, my best friend called. My best friend's name was Kelly, and we had been friends since we were in second grade, and she wanted me to come over to her house to make gingerbread houses. It was our last day of Christmas break before we were supposed to go back to school, and I knew I wasn't supposed to be going anywhere because I was grounded until further notice, but Kelly and I didn't always make the best decisions together, and we decided that I couldn't get in any worse trouble if I left. So I very dishonestly wrote a note to my parents saying that I was going for a walk. But what I did was walk to the end of the street where my friend picked me up and took me to her house. And I hung out there for about three hours. And at the end of the three hours, another friend dropped me off at the end of the street. The reason they did that is because they didn't want to get in trouble for taking me when I was grounded. And as I walked home, I just didn't feel like I could do it. I didn't feel like I had anything left in me. It wasn't really my parents. It was just my life. I was completely empty. I was completely beaten down. I didn't know how to handle anything anymore. So I walked to the pizza restaurant that I had been working at. I got my paycheck. I got a pack of cigarettes, and I just tried to waste time as best as I could. After about a half an hour, I knew that I had to... Go home. I really didn't want to worry my parents any more than necessary because I knew they would probably start to be concerned again. So I, or more so, so I started to walk home, and. Again, I just didn't feel like I could do it. It was almost like my legs wouldn't take me there. I just felt like I had nothing left. So I walked to this park that I grew up playing in. And this is a park that I grew up like swinging on the swings, swimming at the beach, basketball, volleyball, everything. And when I got there, I started to swing on the swings again. And as I sat on the swings, I started to contrast these happy, joyful childhood memories that I had in my life with how I was feeling now as a teenager, very broken, disillusioned, confused, lost, alone. And I felt like no matter what I did, I couldn't go back, I couldn't go forward. I felt like I was just going in circles. I would hope that things would get better. I would believe that things would get better. And it was like one thing after another, after another, after another was happening. And I just didn't know how to handle it anymore. And so then I remembered, as I'm thinking through all of this, that in this small town that I grew up in, about an hour north of Chicago, just for safety's sake. They don't want anyone in the park after dark. And I knew that the police would patrol the park, making sure that nobody was in there. And as I um, remembered that, I, I knew that if they found me, they would make me go home. But the reason I was there was because I didn't want to go home. I wanted some more time to think and just you know, prepare myself um, for my life, really. And so as I thought through that and remembered that, I remembered that there was a train that had been parked I looked around, there was a train that had been parked on the edge of the park. I figured for about three weeks because I'd driven by and hadn't moved at all. So I walked over to the train and I sat on it. And that's not something I normally did. I didn't ever venture that close to, to trains or train tracks, I never played by them or anything. But as I sat on the train that day, it triggered a thought process that I'd had about three months beforehand. And that thought process that I had had was as I was grieving through my friend Brandon's death. My friend Brandon is the friend that I lost to suicide. And his death was the hardest for me because I just could never understand how, how he could do that, why he would do that, why he would do it the way he did it. I remember just really, really struggling with his death. And as I remember as I remembered grieving through his death, um, I remember thinking um, that I could never do that, I could never commit suicide, especially the way that he did it. And then my thought process sort of changed And I thought, well, even though I would never do it, if I would ever do it, how would I do it if I wouldn't do it the way that he did it? And a number of things just sort of ran through my mind, things I'd heard about, read about, or seen on TV, and none of them seemed like they would necessarily work or be good enough until a train went by my parents' house. And I could just feel the power of the train shake our home as it went by. I could hear the whistle blare through the windows, and it just sort of snapped in my mind. That's one way I could never live through it. And it was a completely hypothetical thought process, not something I was actually considering at all at the time. But three months later, as I remembered this thought process, it started to become a consideration. It started I started to think about suicide as an option or as an answer. I really did not want to die. I really just wanted my life to get a little bit easier. I wanted it to be a little less painful, a little more easy to handle. And so I was really back and forth in my mind, and I would think things like, there's a reason I'm here. And then I don't think there's no reason I'm here. I would think it's going to get better. And then I would think it's not going to get better. I would think there's something I'm supposed to do here. And then I don't think there's nothing I'm supposed to do here. And I was back and forth like that, I think for about an hour and a half until a train started to come. And I hadn't made a decision. I didn't know what I was going to do, but it was very cold outside it was the middle of winter so it was January 2nd about eight thirty at night and it was dark and cold I had a winter jacket on with gloves but and I could see you know my breath in the air and I just knew with how cold I was getting I had to make some sort of a decision or go somewhere so I so I thought about it and as the train got closer and closer and closer I just made the most impulsive decision I've ever made and I decided to get off the train I was sitting on and lay down in front of the train that was coming and as I got off the train I was sitting on I remember trying to push down the fear and the shame that I felt on the inside because I knew this wasn't the answer, I knew this wasn't what I was supposed to be doing, I just didn't know what the answer was or what I was supposed to do and it was only about a split second before the train started to go over me And what I felt when the train first started to go over me is I felt it pull my, like suck my head, my hair, and the midsection of my body upward. And then very quickly afterward, I felt something just like push me down and hold me down into the ground. And I didn't know really what that was or what was happening in the moment, but I I definitely felt something push me down and hold me down. And eventually the roar of the train came to a stop. And as It came to a stop. I started to open my eyes. I started to unclench my fists and look around. I really wasn't sure what to believe, what to think, what had just happened. I really didn't even know if I was alive or dead or if this was a bad dream. So as I opened my eyes, and unclenched my fists, and I started to look around. About 10 feet behind me on my right, I saw my legs. And I knew that they were my legs because they had these bright white tennis shoes on them that I'd just gotten for Christmas. But as I saw that, I just didn't feel like that could be my reality. I gathered myself emotionally as best as I could, and I used my arms to crawl out from underneath the train. And as I looked at my legs after I got out from underneath the train, my left leg had been severed so high I couldn't see anything there in the dark. So I turned my attention to where it looked like my right leg had been severed, And my right leg looked like it had been severed below the knee, but I'd never seen my leg like that before. I'd never even seen an amputated leg before. So I took my hand and I ran it below where it looked like it had been severed. And when I did that, I unintentionally brought my hand up to my face. And that's when I saw blood and the pain really started to hit me. When the train was going over me, I felt pain, but it was sort of a dull in the background sort of pain. And once I knew I was alive and I saw the blood and I realized my legs might be gone, I I felt pain much differently, it wasn't much more like in loud, in your face sort of pain I started crying harder than I'd ever cried in my life for sure, I was crying much the way a small child would, even for my mom, so in that moment um, crying harder than I'd ever cried in my life, the way a small child would for my mom, in the worst pain I had ever been in in my life, all of a sudden, this tremendous peace just started to cover me, and I started to hear the song Amazing Grace play over and over and over in my mind and people have asked, was that a song you heard in church that morning? Or was it a favorite song of yours? And it wasn't. But as I listened to that song and just heard it play over and over in my mind, I remember just thinking that could only be music from heaven. And I thought I just needed to lay there hoping, waiting, and praying to, get, to die. I didn't know what it took to go to heaven. I just hoped that there would be something better there for me. So I laid there hoping, waiting, and praying to die. And as I laid there resting in that peace, all of a sudden, I felt somebody pull my hair off my face and behind my ear. And I wasn't expecting anybody to find me. I didn't want anybody to find me. I, of course, was filled with guilt and shame as soon as somebody found me. And the reason he found me, it says in the police report that um, the conductor said to the engineer, did you see that yellow flash? And then the conductor or the engineer said to the conductor, yes, I think we just hit someone. The yellow flash that they had seen was my bright yellow jacket as I laid down on the tracks. So they had dialed 911, and there were a lot of paramedics and firefighters walking the tracks trying to find me, but this this was the first person who did. And it happened to be a firefighter, and as he pulled my hair off my face and behind my ear, I just looked up to see who was there, and he sort of stumbled backwards because he wasn't even expecting me to be alive. But he radioed to the other medical personnel of my location and my status. They got there almost immediately, and they determined that they wanted to take me in a flight-for-life helicopter about an hour away to a hospital in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And not long after that, um, even though I was in such bad shape, they found out they would not be able to take me in a helicopter because it was too cold and foggy out. So they did something that they've never done since that wasn't protocol that they had never done beforehand, and this was that they blocked all of the roads and the intersections from where I was to the closest hospital in the area that could take me. And it says in the police report that it's normally a 45-minute drive, but that they got me there in eight minutes. And as I got there, I, um, I still wasn't in a very good place. I remember they asked me what my name was, what my parents' names were, what their phone number was, my sister's name, my sister's phone number, and I answered all of their questions um, as, as best as I could. And not long after, I remember hearing some of the nurses in the room uh, kind of talking in the corner about how they felt like they were witnessing some sort of a miracle. And that was complicated um, and very difficult for me because I didn't really feel like any sort of a miracle. I didn't really even want to be any sort of a miracle. Um, And as they wheeled me down to the operating room, I remember looking up at the doctor to tell me I wanted some sort of assurance if I was going to live or die. And as I asked him if he thought I was going to live or die, he told me that he didn't know. And he says that he told me that because he wanted me to go into surgery that night fighting, fighting to die, fighting to live. He just wanted me to go into surgery that night fighting. And I was in surgery the whole night long. They did a number of blood transfusions to replace the blood that I had lost. The reason the nurses had thought they were witnessing a miracle is because I had lost eight pints of blood. And scientifically, I guess you're supposed to die after you lose five. But I was still obviously very much alive, conscious, and talking. So they eventually replaced all of that blood that I lost And they tried to reattach my legs, which is something they weren't successful at doing. But it wasn't until the next day, early afternoon, when I started to wake up in intensive care. And as I opened my eyes the first time, I saw my mom, my dad, my sister, my brother, and my brother-in-law all in the room with their arms crossed and their heads looking down at the floor. And my first thought was, wow, something really bad must have just happened because I didn't remember the events from the night before right away, but my mom's eyes met with mine, and she ran to the side of my bed, and she said, oh, honey, you're, we're so glad you're okay. And the memories just started to flood back. And I said, Mom, they cut my clothes, and they cut my coat. And she said, it's okay. You're going to be okay. We're just glad you're okay. We can get you new clothes. Don't, don't worry about that. And I sort of listened to that, fell back asleep. I was on a lot of medication after everything that had happened. So I, I slept you know, at least another day until I woke up again. And the next time I woke up, it was because the doctor came to tell me what my injuries were. And I remember he was very nice. And I think he was actually trying to give me some hope for the future. But he told me that my left leg was severed well above the knee, that my right leg was severed directly below the knee, but that I might be able to walk with the use of prosthetic legs one day. And I know he was trying to give me some hope for the future, but I just really wasn't ready to deal with it yet. I had not even accepted that this had happened yet. So as he talked to me, I remember I just stared out the window that was in my room. As he talked, I didn't say hi. I didn't say bye. I didn't say thank you. I just kind of pretended it wasn't even happening. And eventually he left. The next thing I remember was waking up and just feeling sort of gross and icky. I'm sure I had blood, sweat, and tears on me after everything that I'd been through. And I asked my mom if I could call my best friend Kelly to to help me get cleaned up a little bit. And she said that'd be fine. And she got Kelly on the phone for me right away. And as soon as I got on the phone with Kelly, she asked me how I was doing. And nobody until that point had asked me how I was doing yet. Um, But I felt like I had to tell her something. I felt like she'd been my best friend since I was in second grade. Something had happened, and I had to tell her something. So I looked down at my legs to see if they were actually gone, to see if they were still gone, if this was just a bad dream, a nightmare, mostly hoping this was not my new reality. And as I looked down at my legs, it looked like they were still gone, and I started to suspect that they weren't coming back. So what I said to her was, I'm okay, but my legs are cut off. It's the That was the only way I knew how to describe what had just happened to her. And as I said, that tears just started to stream down my face because that's the moment that it became real to me. That's when I realized this really happened. My legs were really gone. They probably really were never coming back again. And so tears just started to stream down my face. And she said, oh, honey, it's okay. You're going to be fine. You don't need your legs. You're going to be just fine. And sometimes people think that's so simple, that's so trite. How could she have just said that? But it was exactly what I needed to hear. I needed to know that my best friend thought I was going to be fine with or without my legs. She thought I was going to be just fine. And in the coming days, weeks, and months, I had a lot of friends and a lot of family that surrounded me and just loved on me like crazy. And they started telling me things they hadn't really said before. One of the things they told me the most was, Kristen, God kept you here for a reason. There's something you're supposed to do here. Kristen, God kept you here for a reason. There's something you're supposed to do here. I heard it so much that I honestly almost got sick of it because I didn't know why I was here what I was supposed to do here or what God would want me to do here. But the very first weekend that I got out of the hospital, we went back to church. And it was a church that I grew up in that we always went to. But while we were there, a woman who I didn't know came up to me and told me, that I would have went to hell if I died. And I really don't recommend just saying something like that, <laughs> flatly like that. Um, be, what was hardest about it for me is that I just, she didn't even know me. I didn't know why she was saying it. And so I remember thinking, like, what in the world? But that the good thing that came out of it, the very good thing that came out of it, is that it really sent me searching. It sent me searching. Because everybody else told me, Kristen, oh, Uh, everybody said it was a miracle I survived and that I should have died. So they would say, um, of course you would have went to heaven. Don't worry about it. Oh, Kristen, of course you would have went to heaven if if I had died. But I really just, at that point, I didn't want to hear the feel-good answer anymore. I really just wanted to know the truth. If I would have been in heaven or if I would have been in hell, I just wanted to know where I would have been right then and there, one way or another. I just wanted to know the truth. So I started to pray about it. And not long after, a couple came to have dinner with our family. This is a couple that was friends with my sister and they just I was told they just wanted to come over to encourage us after everything that we had been through. Not only had I been through a lot, but my family had been through a lot. So they came to have dinner with us and I found out after dinner that this the husband of this couple was in seminary to be a pastor. And I figured that he probably knew the Bible more than anyone else that I knew. So I just asked him in the living room after dinner if he thought I would have went to hell if I died. And very patiently, very lovingly, very openly, and honestly, he just told me that every single one of us are created to be in this very real and personal relationship with God, but because of our sin and because of the wrong things that we have done, we are separated from him both in our relationship with him and eternally. And... (laughs) I remember him saying that we have to choose to accept Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. We have to choose to let Him lead our lives, and when we do that, we can be put back into a right relationship with God, and we can spend eternity in heaven with Him. But if we don't choose to accept Him for the forgiveness of our sins, then we cannot spend eternity in heaven with Him. And I knew that when he, what He was telling me was something more true than I had ever heard in my life before. But I didn't want to just take his word for it. So I asked him to show me it in the Bible. And he showed me a lot of different verses. But the verse that stood out to me the most was John 14, 6. And that's where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And I felt after reading that verse like Jesus could not have been more clear. He said he was the way, he was the truth, and the life. And I knew that I had not chosen to accept Jesus For the forgiveness of my sins personally I knew that something very special And important seemed to be missing From my life I suspected that was a real relationship With God which I knew I didn't have I always felt like he was like up in the corner Of my life not really involved With the details And I also felt like After everything I'd done especially after trying to take My own life like I had a lot of sin To be forgiven for So as I sat on the floor in my parents dining room After he and his wife left I just prayed the most simple little prayer. I asked God to forgive me for everything I had ever done wrong, even the sin of trying to take my own life. It was that night that I realized that God alone can give and take life. That's not my choice. That's not my place. And as I asked him to forgive me that for that, I asked him to forgive me for everything. And I asked him also to give me a new life. And as as I went to sleep that night, I just felt a little bit different. I felt like something had been lifted off my shoulders, and like I just didn't need to worry so much about my life anymore. And I really believe that that was the night that I became a Christian. I would have told you my whole life that I was a Christian, but that was the moment that I really, really let go, and I asked Jesus to forgive me for everything and turned my life over to him. And sometimes I wish I could tell people that it all changed overnight from that moment forward. It was you know, completely different. But I still struggled with suicidal thoughts and depression for the next three years after my attempt and after I became a Christian. I was in and out of jobs. I was in and out of relationships. I was in and out of college. I was in and out of psych wards. It was a really, really, really difficult time. Part of the reason that I think I struggled so much, though, is because I was not connected to a good church. I wasn't really going to church at all. I didn't realize how important it was to read my Bible every single day and the difference that that could make in my life. And I didn't realize how real Satan was and that he was still trying to destroy my life. So I struggled a lot in those first few years that I became a Christian. But God was at work. He was doing a lot of things. And among those things, um, I met a woman who was at the community college that I had been going to. And she just came up to me in the parking lot one night and shared her story with me And I remember after talking to her, she just like had shined with more peace and more joy and more love for life than anybody I'd ever met before. So I said to God after I got home from meeting her, I said to him, I want to know you the way that lady knows you. And what I felt him tell me was that I needed to let him be my best friend. And I realized at that point in my life that I had not been going to him for help with my problems. I had learned how to go to him my friends my doctors my parents my counselors really everybody for help with my problems but I really had not learned how to go to God for help with my problems and I realized that he was the one who made me he was the one who created me he was the one who knew my problems and the answers to them better than anyone else in this world so really why wouldn't I go to him for help with my problems and I started to walk towards him in this best friend type of relationship and the more I walked towards him the more things started to change I started to experience the peace and the joy and the love for life that I always wanted but had never had before. I was able to get off of all of my antidepressants, all of my pain meds. I was able to quit smoking. I was able to quit drinking. My doctors told me I would have to take those medications for the rest of my life, but to this day, I still haven't had to go back on them. And more, more than anything, I am so, so, so grateful that he um, has taught me the meaning of life that really the biggest reason we are here is to know him and to serve him and to, to do life with him. There was a Christian counselor that I also, um, that God also really used in my life who had me memorize the very first verse that I ever, ever memorized, which was Romans 8.1. And in that verse it says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Part of the reason that I still struggled um, before I started to walk in that best friend relationship is because I was still blaming myself for what I had done to forever change my life and even my family's lives. And she helped me realize, and even memorizing that verse, really helped me realize that I was no bigger than God. I was no greater, no more important than him. And if he could forgive me for everything that I had done wrong, there was no reason for me not to forgive myself. So as I started to forgive myself and I started to walk towards him in that relationship, I just, everything changed. I took off spiritually. I got involved with a really good church. I got involved with the young adults group. I started volunteering at the high, with the high school youth group. Um, and I also got baptized. And at my baptism, I shared my story for the first time. And. At the end of the baptism, they asked um, if anybody else wanted to give their lives to the Lord, if they had never personally made that choice to accept Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and let Him lead their life. And my mom raised her hand. So she started coming to church with me after she became a Christian. And she started bringing my dad to church with her, and he became a Christian. And he started bringing my brother to church with him, and he became a Christian. And it was this amazing time for our family, because so many things changed. We were always close, but not like we were after that, we prayed together about things we would have never prayed about. We read some of the same books, we listened to some of the same music, And one of the coolest things about it is my sister had become a Christian years before, and she'd been praying for our family for years. And eventually, her prayers were answered. And not long after all of this happened, I got asked to share my story at the high school youth group in our church. The youth pastor had heard me share my story at my baptism, and I really, really thought that would be the only one time I ever, ever, ever talked about it publicly. And I really didn't want to do it, but as I prayed about it, I felt like I didn't want anyone ever in this world ever to have to go through something like I did before they realized how big and how real and how faithful God is. So I, as vulnerably and openly as I could, shared my story with the teenagers that night that he invited me to come. And when I was done, almost every single one of them came up to me and told me that they struggled with suicidal thoughts or depression, or they knew somebody who did. And that's when I started to realize that this was a much bigger issue than I had ever realized before. When you're struggling with depression or suicidal thoughts, often you feel like you're the only one, like nobody understands, like there's nobody else like you. But I began to realize that there were a lot more people like me. And as they started to reach back to me, something just started to stir, stir in my heart to help people like that, because they were just like me. And I wanted them to know how much God could help them through everything that they were struggling with and how much hope there was for them. So not long after that, I actually got asked to share my story at another youth event, and I thought it would be the last time. <laughs> and as I shared my story, it was almost like I could see their eyes opened and the chains fall off of them. I could see them choosing life over death, choosing God over sin. And when I was done, there were so many kids that came up to me and told me that they had planned on taking their lives, but they weren't going to now, that they were going to give God everything and put their hope in him. And I remember just thinking in that moment that for the longest time, it made sense to me that God would do what he did in my life to help me. But I just never, ever imagined that he would use what he did in my life to help other people. But he was doing that more and more and more. He was in all of the details from the time I was born until this day, way more than I had any, any idea. And not long after that, I was praying about why God kept me here, what I was supposed to do here. And it I became clear to me very quickly that the biggest reason that he kept me here was so that I could come to know him in this very personal and intimate way. But the biggest thing that he wanted me to do here was help other people come to know him in this very real and intimate way. And I ended up starting a Christian ministry for people who struggle with suicidal thoughts and depression called Reaching You Ministries. And I started to go to Bible college, which if you knew me in high school would have been shocking. But it was really one of the most special times in my life while I was there. I just had so many wonderful godly people pouring into me. And about the same time while I was there, I got asked To share my story on the oprah show and at that time it was the number one show in the world Um, but it was right in chicago where the campus was where i was going to college and i ended up agreeing to do the show and a week later we taped and a week later it aired i shared my story just like i am with you today as openly and vulnerably as i could and as soon as it aired Thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of emails came in through the ministry website that I had started. But there was one email in particular that stood out to me, and it was from a young man who wrote his story um, in an email, but in the subject line he wrote in capital letters, which almost looked like bold print to me, you saved my life. And he wrote this story about how he was planning to take his life that day that my story aired on the Oprah show, He was just waiting for his mom to leave for work. And after she left for work, he walked into the living room to turn the TV off with a gun in his hand. And as he went to turn the TV off, I was on the TV. Talking about how I had tried to take my life, how God had saved me, how I was so grateful to still be here, and how he had completely transformed my life, how Jesus had changed my life. And he says that he got on his knees. He prayed to accept Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And he is now a youth pastor leading other young people to the Lord. And in reading his email, I I was even more aware about how God is in the details. He was in the details in the small moments of my life and in the big moments of my life. Most notably, he was in the details when I was run over by 30 three freight train cars at 55 miles, but I only lost my legs. I've had a lot of people tell me I should have been torn to pieces, but obviously that isn't what happened to me. As I felt myself get sucked up, I think he was the one holding me down into the ground. I lost eight pints of blood, and scientifically you're supposed to die after you lose five, but I was still very much alive, <laughs> conscious, and talking as they got me to the hospital. And, and as I reflected on that, I, I just... I just knew that I had to keep sharing the story. I just knew every single opportunity that God gave me, I had to let him use it. However he wanted to use it, I wanted to let him do it. I realized it wasn't my story, it was God's story. And not long after that, I got speaking requests all over the world, and a number of Christian authors started to offer to write my story for me. But there was one woman who didn't want to just write it for me, she wanted to write it with me. And I agreed to write the book with her. I really felt God leading me to work with her. And it took us about two years to put it into a book. But it's definitely one of the best things I've ever done. People tell me all of the time that they feel like they're reading their story, which is something I could have never planned for. And that they, it's like a first book they've read cover to cover. They hand it out to everybody they know. It's just unbelievable. It's now in eight languages. And... The title that was given to the book, I could never take credit for, but it is, ex- it is exactly really what has happened in my life. It, the title is Life in Spite of Me, and the publishers af- actually gave it that title, but I couldn't have thought of anything more fitting because God has certainly given me life physically, spiritually, and emotionally, all in spite of my sin, in spite of my mistakes, in spite of my weaknesses. He has given me life. And I'm so, 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 so grateful to still be here. I'm so grateful to know him. I'm so grateful to serve him. Really nothing compares to actually knowing him. And I just want to encourage you to seek him with everything in you. No matter where you are in your relationship with God, go deeper, go farther. Let him in in ways that you've never let him in before. Very recently, I got married and... I and to an amazing Christian man, and he loves me more like Christ than anybody I've ever met before. And he brought two young children into my life, and together we've had three more. So <laughs> I often think back about those deep, dark years when I was struggling with my depression and suicidal thoughts, and one of the things that helped me the most was holding on to this verse that I got on a magnet in a card when I was in the hospital, and this is what it said. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you, but to give you a hope and a future. And I believed, even when I didn't have hope for myself, that God had hope for me. I believed that even when I didn't have a future for myself, he had a future for me. And even when I didn't have plans for myself, he had had plans for me, and he really did. He continues to show me what his plans where day after day, year after year, I've seen him work in the most unbelievable ways. I am in such awe of who he is and what he's doing in this world. So I encourage you, again, to just seek him with all of your heart, to let him go deeper, to to go deeper with him than you've ever gone before. Let him in deeper than you have ever before. If, If you are struggling with suicidal thoughts, please, please, please know that suicide is not the answer. Suicide will always take more from you than it could ever bring you. Jesus really is the answer. So seek him. The Bible says that if you seek him with all your heart, you will find him. And I've definitely found that to be true. So you are here for a reason. If you have air in your lungs, there's something you're supposed to do here. Today, tomorrow, every single day that you're here, there's something that God wants you to do here. Don't ever give up. You are here for a purpose. I thought. That God only had a special purpose um, for certain people, but now I believe that He has a special purpose for every single one of us, and that includes you too. Thank you so so much. So good. Just amazing. Just amazing. I'm just amazed. Isn't that amazing? It's just amazing. Okay. It's just amazing thank you thank God for you it's amazing thank you